Let's turn to Luke chapter 12. In preceding verses, and by that I mean in chapter 11, going as far back as verse 14, probably further back, with a lot of, if you want context in the Bible, you probably just as well to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 which we're not going to do, but if you go back quite some way in Luke chapter 11, we've seen the hostility and the unbelief of the scribes and the Pharisees towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Such an obvious example of that hostility, that hatred for the incarnate Son of God. When Jesus cast out an evil spirit from someone, whilst most of the crowd, I guess... Um, most of the crowd were amazed and they wondered if Jesus is the son of David, which is good. That is precisely what should have happened. That's why Jesus performed his miracles, did the things he did, so that people would see his miracles, that they would believe that he is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing they would have life through his name. And we're told that the crowd did did wonder if he was the son of David or the Christ but still there were others and we can learn from other gospel books Mark and Matthew that those others were principally the scribes and the Pharisees they didn't wonder if Jesus is the 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 Messiah or anything like that they accused Jesus of casting out the demon by the power of Beelzebub the devil Can you imagine that? Get your head around that one. They had in the midst of them the incarnate Son of God, the Prince of Peace. And they, they, their their minds, their hearts were so hardened and their minds were so corrupt that what they, what they said there was that where they accused Jesus of being in league with the devil. Blasphemous, blasphemous to even think those things when you consider that he is the son of the living God. Following on from that, last week we considered the invitation that Jesus received and that he accepted to dine with a certain Pharisee. And that Pharisee noticed that Jesus didn't wash his hands before eating. Chapter 11 verse 38 tells us that the Pharisee marvelled. And that would be, that wouldn't have been because Jesus was breaking, he wasn't being hygienic or it had nothing to do with hygiene. It had everything to do with the traditions, the man-made traditions, the commandments of men concerning ablutions, concerning washing your hands, the, 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 the um, tradition said that they had to plunge their hands into the water right up to their elbows and again, as always, like with everything else, make a big show of it. Uh, and this was all part of their man-made traditions. Jesus didn't do it. He, he didn't do it, quite deliberately didn't do it because it was a, a time for Jesus to expose the hypocrisy of those scribes and Pharisees who laid so much emphasis on their traditions. They, traditions, layer upon layer of tradition that they added to the law. Let's not forget that the law was still very much in place there. Jesus came to fulfil the law. But the, the, um, these Pharisees and scribes were adding all this tradition to the law, what God required from his old covenant people. And furthermore, they, they, they saw that that was the way to impress God and do those things and you shall live. Needless to say, the home truths that proceeded from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees that went down like a lead balloon, as can be seen in the last two verses of chapter 12. Look at those last Sorry, the last two verses of chapter 11. Look at the last two verses. 
as he said these things unto them, telling them what hypocrites they were, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things. They were trying to catch Jesus out uh, and to find an excuse to accuse him of something. Verse, verse 54, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him, there you have it, and ultimately destroy him. You see that, you can appreciate the extent of their hatred towards Jesus and their determination to destroy him. And you've got to remember that it was only a few months later that Jesus was nailed to a cross and lifted up to die. They must have thought, at last, we've destroyed him. But we know, if you, we, we're told in Acts chapter 2, that all these things were done according to the foreknowledge, the predeterminate counsel of God. When wicked men laid hold of Jesus, crucified him and slew him, put him to death on the cross, all of that was done in accordance with the will of God. It pleased God to bruise his son Jesus. It pleased God to lay upon him the iniquity of all who would ever trust in him. That doesn't excuse these wicked men for their hatred towards Jesus and their their determination to destroy him. Although we're starting a new chapter today, what we shall consider follows on from where we left off in the previous chapter First of all, we have a warning about the leaven of the Pharisees. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and he did so to his disciples, or at least in the first instance there, he spoke to his disciples, not the whole crowd. And that whole crowd no doubt consisted of people who would, in a few short, in a few months from then, would be amongst the crowd who would shout out, crucify him, crucify him, even though they were there wondering if Jesus is the Christ or the son of David. We needn't imagine that everybody in that multitude, the innumerable multitude we're told in chapter 12 and verse 1, don't imagine for one moment that all of them were, 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 were saved, wonderfully saved and trusting in Jesus. That wouldn't have been the case. So Jesus, in the first instance, speaks to his disciples, his followers. Very important to make that distinction there. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus described the doctrine of the Pharisees as being leaven or yeast. When you think about how yeast penetrates and expands a whole loaf of bread, that's about as much as I know. I've never made a loaf of bread in my life. I've seen my wife and my daughters making it. I know that when you put yeast in it, it makes the whole thing rise. And and that's that. That's as far as it goes. But that's enough. That's what we need to understand here. Well, the Pharisees, they added the traditions of men to God's law, which uh, God's law, which speaks of love, justice and mercy, all good things. Ultimately, God's law is all about love, love for God and love for our neighbour. Whilst adding yeast to a loaf of bread is good, It expands the loaf of bread. It's a good thing to do and we enjoy eating our bread or maybe most of us enjoy eating bread. Adding the commandments of men, expanding God's law by adding commandments to it, the commandments of men, traditions of men, is not a good thing. It's a very bad thing indeed. But this is what they were doing. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus corrected 
his disciples when they thought that he was talking to them about yeast and bread, when they thought that he was giving them a lesson about how to make bread, not realising that he was talking to them about the doctrine of the Pharisees. Jesus corrected them. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 11 and 12, Jesus said to his disciples, How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread? I'm not talking about bread that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Then understand they how he bade them not to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. The doctrine, it's the doctrine of the Pharisees, which Jesus is calling hypocrisy in Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. It's their doctrine. When you remember that the word hypocrite actually means actor or stage player, not only were the Pharisees in our passage hypocrites because they were stage player, they, the world was their stage. They were putting on a good act and fooling many people with their act of being very religious and people saw them and thought, well, this is how we need to be. We need to be like the Pharisees here. Very religious men. putting They were putting on an act. Not only were those Pharisees in our passage hypocrites in that they played the part of being very wise, very pious, very godly men when the reality was that they were full of wickedness and unbelief. They were full of unbelief because they didn't believe in Jesus. So don't think for one moment that they were men of God. They had no understanding of who God is. They completely rejected the Son of God. Wicked men. But also their doctrine is being described by Jesus in the same terms. On the surface, their doctrine was profitable. But underneath it all, it was pure poison and no good to anyone. So just like the Pharisees, on the surface seems fine. But underneath it all, not good at all. And that was how it was with their doctrine. All the things that they were telling people to do, well, seems reasonable enough. Well, no, it's not reasonable. It's not at all reasonable. It's dangerous. Very dangerous. Just like the Pharisees themselves. Very dangerous men. Because they they were deceivers. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees and of their pernicious and harmful doctrine will not remain hidden, but will be revealed and it will be exposed by the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. And the two things, the doctrine of uh, these Pharisees and scribes, which Jesus calls hypocrisy, and he refers to it as leaven, we need to separate that from the purity of the gospel of Christ. The two are completely at odds with each other. With respect to salvation from sin and being reconciled to God, the doctrine of the Pharisees says stuff like wash your hands. This is this was the big controversy in chapter 11. Jesus didn't wash his hands. Also get circumcised if of course you're a male. Forget it if you're a female, but get circumcised. And that was happening in the early church. The, the, the Judaizers, they were people who were trying to impose, the uh, add to the gospel with various requirements. Do this and do that. Um, they were going around to the churches in Galatia and various other places telling the, these new Christian converts, you've got to be circumcised. Also, observe all the feast days that we see in the Old Testament. You've got to do those things. Do this, do that. And finally, if you do all of those things, you shall live. Whereas the Gospel says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and ye shall be saved. Full stop. That's it. Nothing else. 
But the temptation is always there. But do this. You've still got to do this. And, and you see it even in the church. Or I say even in the church. see it quite a lot in the church. Professing Christians, they still feel the need to do various things in order to, I don't know what they're trying to do. They, they, they would say that they are saved, so perhaps they need to do all these things to stay saved. Otherwise they'll lose their salvation. That's not the way it is. The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation, full and free, and it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone that will take you to be with Jesus. It's grace that saves you, grace that keeps you, grace that takes you home to be with Jesus. John Newton got it right in his hymn, Amazing Grace. It's grace from start to finish. The grace that we hear of in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's riches at Christ's expense. And it cost Christ a lot. It cost him his own blood, his own precious blood at the cross. So, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and ye shall be saved. That's the gospel. It's very different to washing your hands and all the other stuff that the, they were, that people were expected to do, that were required to do. Ironically, the gospel is seen by the Jews in this Christ-rejecting world. Talking about now, we've moved on 2,000 years or so. It's seen by the Jews to be a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block to them. And to everyone else, it's foolishness with the consequence that people practice a religion of works that has been poisoned with the leaven of false doctrine. Where You can think of the modern day Jew. They follow a religion which is essentially um, taken from their traditions. It is not the religion that was given to Israel when Moses was their leader. It's a completely different religion. They're following rules, a whole set of traditions that you see in the Talmud. And so they're doing precisely the same things. It's this Pharisaic religion. And, and, and I'm not, and then you think of any other religion, all doing the same thing. Whatever religion you care to think of, following various laws, various rules, various traditions, instead of simply trusting in Jesus, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even atheists, they have a religion of their own, don't they? Very religious they are. If, if you know that, if you try to reason with um, an atheist... They can be scathing and they will not listen to reason because they are following a religion. That is their religion. And the answer to them is the same as for anyone else. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the gospel. Of course I can expand on that. The gospel tells us that Jesus was crucified that he was buried and then on the third day he raised from the dead. We have a risen saviour. A saviour who is highly exalted. Who is seated in heaven. And who is coming again to judge everyone who has ever lived. Even so, day by day, hearts and minds, even though so many people in this world are following Essentially, it's a religion of works. They're trying to uh, get right with God or, or, or have it, earn eternal life through their own endeavours, through keeping various rules and, and commandments of men and so on. Even so, day by day, hearts and minds are, by the grace of God, being open to attend to the purity of the gospel. It's happening in this land and it's happening elsewhere. And we prayed earlier that it would happen in Israel and in the Gaza Strip, that hearts would be open to attend to the gospel message, that people would turn from their wickedness, that they would live through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
this is precisely what is happening as people are 2,000 years after the cross are turning to Christ trusting in him for his finished work at Calvary when he poured out his own precious blood and that includes all of you in here who are trusting in Jesus as repentant sinners you have trusted, you are trusting you have repented, you are repenting it's, it's continuous it, until the day that you go to be with him and your faith is replaced by sight and, and you're with him. How, what a day that will be. By the grace of God, having once trusted in your own works, dear Christian, you now believe that Jesus carried all your sins in his own body. He having lived a sinlessly perfect life on your behalf. Furthermore, the everlasting life that you now live in the flesh, you live by faith of the Son of God, who loved you and who gave himself for you. Secondly, we have an encouragement to preach the gospel. Look at verses 3 through to 5 in chapter 12. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light and that which he have spoken in the ear in closet shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do, but I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he have killed have power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. I presume Jesus was still speaking to his disciples there. Fear him, fear God. Having spoken about the leaven of the Pharisees, namely the doctrine that can save absolutely nobody, even though it might appear to be good and nice and necessary, and is thus very, very deceptive, just like the Pharisees, the Lord Jesus Christ encourages his disciples to preach the gospel, which has already been said is the power of God unto salvation. This is an encouragement to his disciples to preach the word, to preach the gospel. In Matthew, you don't need to turn to, well, up to you, Matthew 10, verse 27, very similar words in Matthew 10, verse 27. Jesus says, what I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. Jesus was talking about the gospel. Matthew 10 verse 27. He didn't tell his disciples the gospel. He didn't tell them about the gospel under the cover of darkness. He wasn't being sneaky or anything like that. But Jesus did hide it from the crowds by communicating the gospel in parables and not everyone would have understood the 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 meaning of those parables the the disciples did and when they didn't understand it Jesus took them aside and he explained it to them the meaning of those parables but not everybody was uh, given an understanding of the gospel it wasn't for everybody it was in that sense it was given in darkness Here in Luke chapter 12 and verse 3, Jesus says to his disciples concerning the gospel that he has communicated to them in darkness and which they have spoken in darkness according to verse 3, that it shall be heard far and wide. Jesus is speaking about how things are going to be. The gospel shall be heard far and wide and they will be the ones who will proclaim it or at least in the first instance. We see that in Acts of the Apostles and the, 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 the day of Pentecost with the Apostle Peter preaching the gospel to that assembly of Jews in Jerusalem. And, but of course, as we've moved on in time, the, the, the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel message is given to pastors, evangelists, missionaries, and, and to a degree to all who belong to Jesus.
also those men received a lot of much needed encouragement from their master. Let's remember, they can't have failed to see the murderous intent, that murderous hostility towards Jesus. They would have been, they, they would have been asleep if they hadn't noticed the, the hostility towards him from the scribes and the Pharisees. And now in verse 3 of chapter 12, those disciples were being told by Jesus to proclaim his gospel from the rooftops, no less. And can you imagine that? They've seen the hostility towards their master, and Jesus is now telling them to proclaim the gospel from the rooftops. Don't do it in secret anymore, not in darkness, but for everyone to hear. And it is by the foolishness of preaching, the preaching of the cross, that God is pleased to save them that believe. It still is. It was then and it is now. The foolishness of preaching. And I know that when I say something in from the pulpit and I think, Glenn, why did you say that? Um, but nevertheless, it's through the foolishness of preaching that God is pleased to save them that believe. Them who he has chosen before the foundation of the world to be called with an effectual call through the preaching of the gospel and drawn to his son savingly united to him through faith however any disciple of Jesus who is in any way involved in the proclamation of the gospel to a world that is truly hostile to the truth. People don't want truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the ultimate truth. And if the world hates Jesus, it hates the truth. It's hostile to truth. So anyone who proclaims the gospel knows what an onerous task it is. And he knows uh, rather, he has no doubt about the dangers of it. And anyone who actually proclaims the gospel will have various stories, various stories of how he has been threatened in some way or people have said horrible things to him or her when he or she has proclaimed the gospel message, whether it's to a work colleague, someone at school, Someone in the community may be knocking on people's doors and talking to them. Hostility to the truth. It's always there to varying degrees. And again, these disciples, they were in need of encouragement, having seen the hostility towards Jesus. And so the incarnate Son of God, addressing his much-loved disciples, he calls them friends, doesn't he? He calls them friends in this. Verse 4, I say unto you, my friends. This is the Son of God speaking to these men who would in a few short months run off like a bunch of cowards when Jesus was arrested. And the big coward named Peter would deny him three times but they're friends. And it is all grace, after all. It's grace, the grace of God towards them, that he calls them friends. And he said to them, concerning the enemies of the gospel, such as those Pharisees, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. In verse 4 there. The, the worst thing that wicked men are able to do and only then, if God permits it, is to destroy the body. And then what happens? If God permits the enemies of the truth, the enemies of Christ, to destroy the body, to kill someone, in other words, someone who's uh, destroys someone because of their testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? Well, that death has ushered that person into the presence of the God of his salvation. Again, what did Paul say? To live is Christ and to die is gain. So even when the, the, the disciples of Jesus are put to death in the body, they just go to be with Christ, which is far better. It's a win-win situation, isn't it? 
being a Christian. It really is. It's infinitely better to be with Christ than to continue in the body of sinful flesh in this wicked world that we live in. Most of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ were in fact martyred and so too have many thousands of Christians paid the ultimate price for the testimony that they held concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. What the enemies of Christ and the enemies of the gospel cannot do is destroy both the soul and body in hell. That's something that only God can do and that is something that God will do. Not only the the bodies and souls of those nasty, unbelieving bunch of hypocrites, the Pharisees, but of everyone, everyone, and I'm sure that includes one or two in here, who have not done the will of God. And what is the will of God? We looked at that last week and we saw in John chapter 6 that the will of God is to see the one whom he has sent and to believe in him. That is God's will. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else. And even then when you believe, that's a God-given faith. You can't even give yourself a pat on the back for believing in Jesus. You can bow down before him, thanking God for your faith and praise him forevermore for that faith. But the will of God is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And woe betide anyone who does not do the will of God. Not a good thing, because God is the one who destroys both soul and body in hell. We need to get that into our heads. Last of all, in verse 5, Jesus says, concerning God, fear him. Again, speaking to his disciples, fear him, fear God. If you're someone who is not trusting in Jesus, not trusting in the gospel, you don't believe the gospel, which is pure and unmixed with anything whatsoever that tells you what you must do in order to get saved, to get right with God, or to remain saved if you're a Christian following some stupid works that you do, as of necessity. You know, you can have little dietary things going on in your life, but as long as you're not doing that to, to remain saved, or to get saved, that's wrong. You can observe various holidays and things. As long as you're not doing that to get, get saved or to continue to be saved. I hope you, you understand that. But if you are not trusting in Jesus and you, you have not believed the gospel message, you have every reason to fear God. You have every reason to fear God for the everlasting punishment in hellfire that awaits you. Am I trying to scare people into heaven, into faith? Maybe I am, I don't know. The Bible does that though. The Bible speaks about hell. The Bible speaks about everlasting fire. I once knew a a dear Christian, and I have no doubt whatsoever that he was a, 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 a Christian, and he was very instrumental in my own journey to Christ. It was when he read about hellfire in Revelation. It made him think about things. That's not a bad thing. We don't avoid talking about hellfire because of fear that we're trying to scare people into faith. I'm just going to tell you it as it is. Jesus talks about hellfire, the weeping weeping and gnashing of teeth, the outer darkness where the worm never dies and and, and all these things. Um, The lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20, it's all there in the Bible. You need to think about these things because it ought to tell you how angry God is with sinners. Not just with sin, but with sinners. So much so that he will destroy soul and body in hellfire. Don't be, don't be fooled. 
As for all of you who are Christians, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know God as your Heavenly Father, your loving Heavenly Father, who you pray to, and praise God for that. You too are to be afraid, but your fear is altogether very different, isn't it? It's not that fear of um, damnation and everlasting punishment in hellfire from an angry God who is a consuming fire. That's not the fear that you have. You seek God's grace to worship him in the beauty of holiness, I trust. For God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. We have a reverence for God, acknowledging that he is the creator of heaven and earth. And we have that attitude of heart whereby we take off our shoes because we stand on holy ground when we worship God. Because if we don't do that, who else is going to? Not this unbelieving world, that's for sure. Thirdly, the providential care of God towards the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and all who confess him before men. We're going to look at God's providential care. As Jesus continued to encourage his disciples to preach the gospel, despite the inevitable persecution that they would encounter, he first of all pointed out, I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but he pointed out, First of all, in verses 5 to 12, that even those sparrows have little value. Nothing can happen to them apart from God's permission. God who made them, God who sustains them. Even these little sparrows. You know, and when my cat comes in in the middle of the night with a sparrow, and uh, she brings it in the bedroom, a gift for Pauline and me, wakes us up and... Poor little sparrows in in the room. <laughs> that poor little sparrow. I don't I don't pretend to understand these things, but I I know what the scripture tells me. Nothing happens to these sparrows apart from God's permission. But we, people made in the image of God, when you see that um, Genesis chapter one verse twenty seven are worth so much more than those little sparrows. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 26, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Therefore, putting aside any concerns that you might have about your safety or of people saying nasty things about you or to you when you when you confess Jesus, when you proclaim the gospel, what really matters for the disciples of Jesus is the confession of his name. You don't zip it, you don't keep quiet out of fear of men. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And that confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, when does that start? It starts when you're, a, when a person is a repentant sinner. And you, when you first receive Jesus as your Saviour, when you first believe in Him. For example, it happens in the waters of baptism. You confess Jesus as your Saviour. But it doesn't end there, does it? How can it? How can anyone in whose heart the Lord Jesus Christ dwells by faith not confess him before men? How can he or she keep quiet about the name which is above every name? I don't see that it's possible for a new creature in Christ 
We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But as new creatures in Christ, I cannot get my head round how anyone, especially in this free land of ours, would keep quiet about Jesus. Something doesn't add up there. So we confess Jesus before men. And look what Jesus says in verse 8 about those who confess him before men. Verse 8. Also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. When you read that, now this is interesting, you read that alongside Matthew 10.32, you might want to look at it actually. Um, instead of just listening to me, do a little comparison here. So keep your finger in at Luke chapter 12 and verse 8, but also Matthew chapter 10 verse 32. I'm going to come back to this at the end of the sermon. So find Matthew 10.32, similar but not the same. Maybe you could read it yourself. I don't want to spoil it for you. Spot the difference. Matthew ten thirty two. Okay, for the sake of time, I'm going to jump in now. Again, Luke chapter 12, verse 8. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. So the Son of Man, Jesus, will confess those who confess him. He shall confess them before the angels of God. But then in Matthew 10:32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him shall I confess also before it doesn't say the angels of God. It says my father which is in heaven. So there's the difference there. One says the angels of God. The other one says my father which is in heaven. And then keep that in mind. I'm going to come back to that. Then we come to verse 10 in Luke chapter 12. And Jesus mentions the most serious sin of all in that there's no forgiveness for those who commit that sin. And it is a sin that is associated with not confessing him before men. Look at verse 10 again. Whoever shall, shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. Right, so I wonder what this sin is. This sin, it says it there, doesn't it? Blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven. In Matthew chapter 12, the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost is spoken of by Jesus in relation to him casting out a demon by the power of Beelzebub. Ascribing to the devil what was done by the power of the Holy Ghost. That was it. And we've seen it even in Luke's Gospel. Jesus, he really upset those Pharisees when he cast out a, a demon. And he did it. Jesus did it by the power of the Holy Ghost. And they accused him of casting out the demon by the power of the devil. So what ought to have been um, ascribed to the power of the Holy Ghost, God the Holy Spirit, was ascribed to the devil. In so doing, they were not only rejecting Christ, as serious as that is, but they were actively and vocally opposing God the Holy Ghost, by whom Jesus cast out the demon. And, and it's the Holy Spirit who quickens or raises up to life all who are dead in their trespasses and sins. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, applying the truth of the gospel to men's hearts, having raised them up from, from uh, death to life. 
You have he quickened who were dead in your trespasses and sins, Jesus said to the Ephesians. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, raising people up to life, applying the truth of the gospel to them. And and then if you're actively, vocally rejecting the power of the Holy Spirit, This is called the sin that shall not be forgiven in Luke chapter 12 and verse 10. I can't really expand on it any more than that. I I mean, for one reason, I can't, I'm not prepared to say who, who has committed that sin and who hasn't. That is way, way beyond my paycheck. I cannot do that. Suffice to say, though, if you were someone who was concerned that you may have committed that unpardonable sin, the very fact that you're concerned about it indicates that you have not committed it. A person who has committed it couldn't care less, like those Pharisees. But even them, I'm not saying that all of those Pharisees had committed the unpardonable sin. Maybe one or more of them is in heaven now. What do I know? But we are warned there, and it's a very serious warning indeed, and one that we don't skip from verse 9 to 11. We we read that, and we take that on board to be very careful not to be flippant and to be blasphemous, out terribly blasphemous, ascribing to the devil what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And, and that 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 rejection of God's grace and His power, and again, maybe there's someone in here who may or may not be in that position, because it's a very dangerous position to be in, rejecting Jesus, and. Rejecting, ultimately, when you reject Christ, you're rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, the one who applies all this truth to us. We're saved, uh, we're born again by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. You're saved through faith by means of the word of God. And it's the Holy Spirit who applies the truth of God's word to hearts and minds. And you're in a terrible position indeed if you start dismissing all of that. Best of all is when you as a sinner saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus who loved you and who gave himself for you. Confess him before men. Not just um, not just the pastor and evangelist but all of you. That should be an encouragement to all you who belong to Jesus. Confessing him before men. How very different that is to committing the, the unpardonable sin there. It's the other extreme, isn't it? But it's a good extreme to be on. Confessing your Saviour before men. The Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Regardless of what people say or do, that's an irrelevance in a sense. And you do that, you confess Jesus before men to family, to friends, to enemies Knowing and believing that your heavenly father watches over you and he cares for you. And again, nothing will happen to you apart from God's permission. Nothing at all. Last of all, a few minutes ago it was seen that where Jesus said in verse 8, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall I confess Shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God? You remember that? And then we looked at Matthew's Gospel where it says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. So not the angels of God, but my Father in heaven. Let me just end with a little story here. About 30 years ago, My old pastor was preaching on the prodigal son. We'll get there eventually. It's in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. 
And he read in Luke chapter 15 and verse 10 where Jesus says, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. I say it again. I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. The pastor then asked, who is in the presence of the angels of God? You should be able to answer that because you've already looked at Matthew and compared it with Luke where one says the angels of God, Jesus will confess you before the angels of God and the other one says that he will confess you before my Father in heaven. Who is in the presence of the angels of God? The prodigal son, Jesus says, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And the answer is God. The God is in the presence of the angels in heaven. It thrilled my heart, I don't know if you're sitting there blank faced, but it thrilled my heart that there is joy from none other than the most high God. The most high God, the creator of heaven and earth over one sinner who repents and I went on to learn I can't remember if I'd already become a Christian by then or whether I hadn't but to think that there's repentant, uh, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God joy from God the creator of heaven and earth over one Glenn who comes to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ of course I learnt that, uh, that Glenn, me was chosen before the foundation of the world, loved with an everlasting love. A love that was expressed at Calvary when Jesus, the Son of God, laid down his life, bearing away my sins. And then my Heavenly Father, there was joy when finally in his time and in his way, I came to faith in his beloved Son, as a guilty sinner. But that's how it is. That's how it is. Where does all of that leave you? Are you placing your trust and all your hopes in the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy? It will save nobody. Or are you simply trusting in Jesus for your acceptance before a holy and righteous God? Amen. Amen.